Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is my one, two, three, fourth episode that I've that I've done remotely ever after five and a half years of doing them all in person and having perfect audio. I'm now uh, I'm now frantically trying to figure out how to give people the best um, quality content. I just added this microphone and figured that out. We're gonna see if that works. Um, and uh, and this is a. Uh, uh, this is it's been a bit of a whirlwind for me um, in my in my bunker and I can only imagine so much more intense and crazy and stressful for way 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 more people out there and I, I really appreciate you uh, tuning in and, and checking this out these are special pandemic edition episodes of my science podcast here we are and uh, I want to I want to talk to as many different people in as many different fields as possible to get as many perspectives on this um, as we can, and and uh, not just hear the same um, the same stuff on a loop on the news on on the news. So with that in mind, today I have an English professor. You may be the very first English professor ever on the Here We Are podcast we're sneaking up on 300 episodes i think i had one historian once and i think you might be the first english professor um and you're recommended to me kari nixon is joining us today kari thank you for joining us you're at whitworth university in spokane yep um so is so it's my understanding that that seattle is uh washington's one of the worst hit places seattle especially um spokane being um a decent ways away from seattle i mean i guess everything's relative but how how's uh spokane doing uh so far we haven't felt, I think, the sort of intense anxiety that people must be feeling in, in Seattle where it is truly a hotbed. But I, I think there's something to be said, of course, for being in the same state as one of the hotbeds, given that we're such a states' rights nation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think what I've seen anyway, I'm sure you've probably noticed it too, is we're kind of relying on the, each individual state to do its own thing in terms of shelter in place or lockdown or or different aids that they're offering people as Congress has been negotiating the stimulus package, which I heard just went through this morning. Um, So there was a sort of connection there feeling that whatever was necessary to be done because of Seattle was likely going to impact us. Um, As an educator too, I think universities were some of the first things to begin closing down. because the way we talked about it is dorm rooms are basically cruise ships. Mm. I mean, there's a reason that we kind of only give meningitis vaccines to college students. I mean, the dorm rooms are just such a hotbed of infection. And so universities were closing down really early. And I know for us in Spokane, it was the idea that we have a lot of students coming from the West side over in Seattle. And if they go home for spring break and then come back, to Spokane, and we have three or four major universities here. Um, We've got Gonzaga, Eastern Washington, Washington State, and Whitworth. So, you know, if we have a bunch of students from those four universities going home to Seattle for a week and then coming back, then we've just facilitated spreading the pandemic. Mm. So I know that was a major concern in in that way, sort of the connections um, and invisible footprints of microbes that happen in that way. Boy, I guess I never really thought about the dorm room situation. Of course, that's the last place that you want to be. That's that's so far. Uh, 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 th- that might be the quote of the episode. Dorm rooms are basically cruise <laughs> ships. 
that's that uh, that um yeah you know that that doesn't make either dorm rooms or cruise ships sound terribly appealing um i i've never i've never done either perhaps maybe the less said about the reasons for that the better Uh, yeah yeah um, I, I mean, they do, I mean, we all I have imagination. I published a book on syphilis right when I got to this job. <laughs> now, syphilis in my career is yeah. like one of the lesser things I study, but to this day, I'm known as the syphilis professor. So, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I didn't <laughs> realize I was talking to the syphilis <laughs> professor. What, <laughs> what an honor. Um, you know, I like to consider myself the tuberculosis or the group A strep professor, but you know, sure, your reputation sure. comes from outside. People not hear American, syphilis so. one time and that's what you're known. I know. I can't escape the reputation. <laughs> <laughs> Much so like you, syphilis can be hard to escape without penicillin. Right, right. Oh man. Well, 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 th- this is, uh, uh, uh we're, we're going to be, um, we're probably going to be not as worried about and judgmental about syphilis as as we've <laughs> we, we, we've really taken to um, reprioritizing our our fears over the last few weeks. We're 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 going to be um, you know getting nostalgic for the for the days when all we worried about was a little syphilis here and there. <laughs> you know, as long as it's treatable with antibiotics, I say. Yeah. Why worry until the antibiotic resistance crisis kills us all? Right, right, right. That's the other. <laughs> I, I like I like to. One of my favorite things about these um, pandemic uh, episodes is that, without fail, on every single episode, not only have we talked a bit about um, the uh, corona uh, virus, but we also um, we also have. Uh, made sure to bring up at least one if not two other ways in which the world uh will will surely end (laughs) (laughs) if this doesn't get us there's a there's something else right around the corner um yeah so so let's 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 talk a little bit about that's uh i mean I'll let you steer the ship a little bit. I mean, basically, I'm trying to get as many different perspectives as possible, and the I dorm find room that cruise ship. I, I I find that well, I find that. Okay, and uh, and I'm back. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, so basically, uh, what I was what I was trying to say before we got disconnected a little bit was was that um i find that you know everyone has their own disciplines and uh, everyone's interdisciplinary these days as well but a lot of times people's main focus it really shapes the the lens through which they see the world it's oftentimes how they found themselves in in a particular field of study and so uh what's cool about um a horrific situation like this um, is uh, the the one kind of neat silver lining in terms of science communication is I think it allows people to see as many different aspects and points of view on the same, ultimately the same issue. Um, and just so people can really appreciate um, what science does and adds to the, the full picture of understanding our, uh, our existence. So, um, so when, when something like this happens, what does it bring up for you as someone who's written a book about syphilis and, um, and it, I, and also maybe give people a little bit of your background because I don't fully understand, um, what you do either. Uh, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm an English professor, but I, I study the medical humanities, Mm. Um, which is, you mentioned you've had a historian on your show. It's sort of a blending of his history and bioethics, philosophy, and literary studies, some communication studies. Um, the way we kind of look at English these days is a lot less like we're just studying dusty old books, although we do do that when we feel like it. But um, it's more that uh, English we think of as an interpretive lens, a way of learning different tools of interpreting the world, and then we see everything as a text. I mean, I just finished a book on motherhood advice on Facebook, 
Um, and we were analyzing the language on formula cans. I mean, I had to go figure out how to cite a formula can in my references. Um, hmm. So we see everything as a text. Um, but I really like what you were saying about this giving us uh, a lot of different ways to see uh, talking about the same event. I don't know if you saw a meme that was going around, I think around Father's Day last year. Maybe it was maybe more like six months ago. It was on Twitter. And it was this sort of thing that everybody was customizing um, as if they were on a plane with their dad and there's an emergency on the plane and they need a doctor. And the joke is that their dad is like, that could have been you. You could have been a doctor, but you wanted to be a musician. Yeah. And everybody was customizing it for themselves. And I had my first almost viral tweet. Didn't It got like 100 <clears throat> likes, which was a big deal for me. Ooh. I know. I felt pretty important. Because mine was, and it was so on brand for me, the people that knew me were laughing the most. Because mine was... Um, it's supposed to be your dad nudging you to go up and then you being like, no, there's a medical emergency. But mine was me punching my dad and telling him to let me go help because I'm a medical humanist. Yeah, and medical yeah. humanities can help us understand why we're so upset. <laughs> and, right, um, right, right. And well, I actually felt like this has been a, a great time for medical humanities because one of my many mantras as somebody who I sort of think of myself as specializing in uh, death, disease, and existential angst. Um, primarily infectious disease has been my my bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's um, a heck of a niche. You know, I, I do pride myself on being called Dr. Death. It's kind of <laughs> fun. But I'm really fun at parties is my other yeah. sort of motto. Invite me. I'm great. Great fun. Yeah, yeah. Do Dr. Death, the syphilis lady. <laughs> oh, I like tuberculosis so much better. Um, yeah, but so... You know, it's really come up as people have gotten saturated with the epidemiology. The first few months this was happening, um, I, I found myself sort of, I felt like I was screaming into the void to get um, people to let me write op-eds to say that my field matters as much as the epidemiology. And yet now that we're at the end of March and people are getting so sick of the same epidemiology over and over and over, mm -hmm. and we're all trapped in our houses, we're scared, we don't know what to think. I find that what I've been saying for so many years, which is what we talk about when we talk about disease is really talking about people. Mm. That's why we care about disease. People are really starting to want that human element and to talk about how we feel about this and to feel like that's a legitimate perspective as we get all of our socialization and interpersonal relationships kind of stripped to their core right now. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's definitely not the first instinct when a pandemic breaks out and everyone's rushing, uh, to stock up at the stores. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not as intuitive for people to be like, are there any English professors I know. that can help us right now? <laughs> um, but, but this is, um, uh, this is, it's from my little bit of your work that I got to see it. It looks like you're kind of You've you've been going back through time and through literature for some time to see how um, how different writers and and different cultures have uh, uh, have uh, the different perspectives that they've had on on many different diseases and and plagues and issue medical issues through history, right? Um, right. Yeah. Sort of? Yeah, I'm no, always that's like, a great summary. I'm always like summary. crossing my fingers, like, oh, I, I had 10 minutes to read what you do. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not butchering it. Well, then you're <laughs> as prepared as some of my students, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's exactly how I would characterize my work. Um, and I think, uh, I hope I can be as concise as you. I'm not, as particularly as a Victorianist. I mean, I get a lot of my stylistic influence from Dickens. So yeah. <laughs> I tend to be well, a little overly long-winded. Oh, um, well, you're in luck. We're, we're going to be quite the pair. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can be as concise as you just were. But the, the really interesting parallel that I find between my forthcoming book um, on the history of infectious disease and in society is... That, so I study this one little tiny, tiny, tiny slice of history, the 1880s to the 1895-ish, um, 1897, if we want to split hairs, but who's counting? Only me. Um, <laughs> the reason that that's an interesting time period and why I isolated it is that they had germ theory had 
become popularly accepted in Britain at this time. And that meant, of course, the idea that most diseases that people were dying from were likely contagious. Mm-hmm. So the the broad lay public that was literate was apprised of this because all this stuff was published in newspapers. It wasn't specialized in scientific journals like it is for us today. And so they had this understanding that certain microbes cause certain diseases, but they wouldn't have any medicines to treat these diseases until 1928 when we got penicillin. So there's this really unique time period in this 15, 20 year period where they kind of just gifted themselves through science. All they got was sort of the horrifying reality that they were all killing each other Mm -hmm. and that your husband or daughter that you're sitting across the breakfast table from is probably the one that gave you tuberculosis. Yeah. And and isn't that what we're living through right now when we have an emerging infectious disease that pretty much all we know to do is wash our hands, which the Victorians did know at this late period. Um, They knew about antiseptics. They knew about washing your hands and they knew that it was one another that was killing each other. The end. This is a really horrifying state to live with. And it's exactly what we're living through right now. And what I go from there is like, I mean, at the end of the day, science is also about people. We use science to explain the world we live in. And what, where does that leave us when the science only takes us so far? Hmm. And in our day and age, 2020, we're used to science taking us a lot farther, especially in the developed world. We're not used to there being, I mean, even I, as somebody who studies this and teaches medical ethics, I've never thought about a reality where we didn't have enough ICU beds. And so I would, I would venture to say that people who spend a lot less of their day thinking about medical ethic dilemmas and death and dying probably have thought about this less than I have. We're not used to thinking that science can't just fix it right this second. Mm-hmm. So it, I think we're kind of in the same dilemma in a really interesting and horrifying way. And for me, existential angst that is horrifying is also really interesting and great. So kind of been yeah. right now. <laughs> well, outside of washing their hands, were there other techniques people were stumbling on back then? Were people using physical distancing back then? Or was it, uh, were, were people staying out of kind of the cities and markets and more populated places? Were people, were people stocking up more on things than usual? Um, well, so that's a really great question. My my first chapter actually goes back to the 1700s. Now, every other chapter is almost into the 1900s. It's so late. But I start in the 1700s because germ theory was not our first idea that disease was contagious. Um, if you think about times like the Black Plague, even in the Middle Ages, I mean, it was pretty fucking obvious that that disease was contagious, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I kind of describe it to my students, it's okay to cuss, right? To oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't, um, I, I, the only reason why I don't um, cuss very often is just because of, for, for the sensibilities of my guests. I'm, I'm oh, sure, but, I was going to say, is it because you're a gentleman that, and a scholar? No, <laughs> absolutely not. But now that you've given me the go ahead, fuck yeah. <laughs> So naughty. I think I think we have bigger issues right now. Then, right? Come on. Let me say the f bomb. Cool, cool. We're on the same page then. So, I mean, it was just diseases that are quickly transmitted, that have a short incubation period, and that are highly virulent are just obviously infectious to your average Joe. It's like I have all these buboes on me, and then I touch you, and you get the buboes. It's just really obvious. Mm -hmm. That is. Uh, in stark contrast to say something like tuberculosis, which has a very, very slow incubation period of years and is really, really weakly infectious. And so even into 1915, even though, even though they had identified the bacteria that caused mycobacteria that caused tuberculosis, they would still debate if it was maybe more genetic because it just didn't seem visually uh, contagious. Mm. So I start in the 1700s with a book on plague by Daniel Defoe. Now it's a novel, but it was sort of like, what would we call that now? Uh, What's the word for that genre? Gosh, I'm the English person. Like based on a true story type of? Yeah, yeah. Don't we call it like 
creative nonfiction or something. Yeah. Oh my God. My creative writing colleagues are going to just really judge me. You're really um, in for it. I know. I know. <laughs> um, creative nonfiction. He's based it on a recent plague in England and he goes through all these methods. Basically the whole book, it's a weird book. It's mostly him just charting the mortality statistics city by city every day. So it doesn't feel like a novel, but it's not real statistics. Mm. Um, it's sort of like he's simulating the reality we're living in now where you wake up and Twitter is just like, here's how many people died in Italy. Here's how many people died in Spain. And what he talks about, I wish, ugh, I wish the timing had been a little different because my whole argument about Defoe is that what he's talking about doing is social distancing. Um, but I at least didn't know that term yet. I think that term has sort of been invented for this moment, but I may be wrong about that. He talks about how quarantines, like they tried to do on the cruise ships disastrously, will be disastrous. He's like, you just can't control that many people. It is impossible to force it to happen. And what happens is people get um, rebellious and angry and they just sort of explode out of these quarantines. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have, I called it in my chapter, um, like mediated boundaries or osmotic boundaries that allow a little bit of flow. Hmm. Um, he particularly, he was really into economics and global trade, Daniel Defoe was. Uh, and so he's really like, we can't shut down the economy with hard stop quarantines across nations. So he, um, at the very end of the book, he gives this example of this family that did it right. And they, um, construct their house they have a porter which is just a guy that stands at their door he goes and gets their groceries he puts them in a basket and the family like pulls the basket up on a pulley so that there's social distancing and limited touch points between them which is exactly hmm. what we're doing with uber eats right now i think it's so funny this is, that he, that's like, amazing I just love it i mean i'm not really a defoean person i study a much later period I include this time period to show the sorts of dilemmas of human contact, which is the title of my book, The Dilemma of Human Contact, that, that come up in pandemics. Hmm. But it's just been fascinating to me that he predicted it kind of more spot on than any of the later people I talk about. That's, that is interesting. And, and it's one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is when you go back through the literature, um, I mean, I, I guess you've sort of already answered this nicely but i i was i was curious what the correlation is between popularity uh, at the time and then like accuracy how how accurate people actually were in hindsight because m my intuition would 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 make me guess that probably some of the more popular literature was the least accurate if, if things are anything like today or uh, you know it's it's the highly dramatized stuff that kind mm -hmm. of tends to draw people's attention a bit more um so so any any uh yeah. any thoughts on I, I know that's not probably not like a, a study that you've run or anything like that but just kind of reflecting back on what what you've read oh Who, no so happy to answer that question because yeah. i also for my book i do study some like uh, medical advertisements to, I, I, I try to get more at what literature can show us as almost an archeological exhibit of what people were thinking about at that time. I um, love a good old med so medical I study a advertisement. Lot of articles and stuff too. Um, yeah. The way that I think like reading medium or the daily beast in 200 years would give people of what, what we're thinking about. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, and I just actually my medical humanities class, I just can, can I have it you a hold? bunch. Okay. I just changed my entire medical humanities class actually because the rest of the semester we were gonna spend reading the hot zone by um why is his name escaping me, right? The second, of course it is. You remember the hot zone from nineteen ninety-three about Ebola and it outbreak was based on it, the movie. Mm-mm. No. Oh man. Huge bestseller in the nineties and tons and tons of like grossly inaccurate fear mongering information in that book mm -hmm. that to this day has affected, I think the actual spread of Ebola and how much we fear it and help or don't help. 
Um, and so I usually have my students read that to get a sense of what language can do in terms of physical disease spread by changing foreign aid policies and stuff like that. But just looking through the chapter titles, I was like, I can't make my babies read this right now. Like, <laughs> Mm-hmm. They're probably too scared already. Like, I am not scared of infectious disease. I mean, I think I can't be to do what I do all day, every day. Um, but most people are pretty stressed out right now. And yeah. I was like, I can't make them read it. Now, thinking about my book, uh, I wanted to bring up The Hot Zone because it's so inaccurate about Ebola. But that's a much more recent book. Um The other chapters that I cover with the Victorians in the late 1800s, I think what's very interesting about them is uh, many of them, it varies so much by individual author, I would say. Um, There are some authors that are manipulating the known facts of a disease to build almost a sort of quasi-speculative fiction to make a social point. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute about that. There are other authors that are using the best science of the day to demonstrate their point, but the mm-hmm. science ended up you know, not being what we would think. Mm-hmm. Um, you looked like you had something you wanted to add. So before, oh, I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I think, I think that maybe the way, the way that I would phrase, and maybe this is uh, silly, but just to make it, I think what you're saying accessible is kind of, kind of the way um, South Park represents like real things that are happening in culture, but in this very dramatized kind of imagined world. That is a yes. reflection of what's going on, but not not specifically like in detail exactly what's going on. Yeah, I love that. And the way they'll sort of some like they'll get like one little detail that's like completely made up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm thinking off the top of my head, the episode when Obama was elected and they're really kind of accurately portraying the frenzy of both sides after that moment. But then they build in like a a diamond heist into it and it just kind of goes off the rails. That's exactly, I think that's such a great parallel for what I see. Like they, and so what I see my job as, as a lit scholar who also studies history and philosophy is to say in every chapter, here is exactly what everybody thought at this point in time, Hmm. how syphilis worked or tuberculosis worked. And these were sort of the social questions that that science brought up. And here's therefore what this author did with that to make a critique of society and that social problem. Mm. Uh, So for instance, um, in the 1860s, there was a huge syphilis outbreak in Britain. And because they were also incredibly, just like almost comically at times to us, misogynistic Mm -hmm. the way they wanted to curb the spread of syphilis was by restraining sex workers Mm -hmm. um because they were were they were they calling it the woman virus by any chance like any any leaders (laughs) calling it uh well for all intents and purposes no they didn't rename it that Uh, (laughs) although there are but they were kind of implying yeah, so I'm just wondering was, if there's any any parallels to kind of what's going oh yeah. on now. I mean, the British that's, always called it the French disease. Yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, endless parallels of like that's not our disease, that's their disease, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the um, and there's tons. There's tons of um, post-colonial histories mm-hmm. of the British as they're like raping and pillaging and exploiting other lands, like say India in the Victorian era saying like, oh my God, that place is so unhealthy with all this malaria. It's just an inherently unhealthy country. But it's like, well, you wouldn't be dying if you hadn't stolen all their shit. Like, yeah. no way, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then using that unhealthy Indian landscape narrative to justify terraforming and deforesting the lands and like- Helping them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, you could call all my books like why the British ruined everything or why white people are terrible historically. Like, so. Um, so what are some of the things that people had just um, I mean, I guess you're touching on this now, um, but what are what are some of the 
things that it, you know as you said that the general population had a had a sense of contagion and and germ theory as that was coming out and um the scientific and medical literature was was in the popular press uh, at that time but what are some of the um, more horrific uh, misunderstandings that you've like. I often think about this example of um, of uh, of X rays uh, when X rays first came out. Um, are you familiar? Like, cure everything. X ray your throat all the time. X ray your sunburns to make them better. Yeah, well, they did something with stomachs because they were used to doing autopsies and figure, and that's how they learned anatomy. Was people laying flat. Uh, you know, um, the deceased laying flat on a table. And that's how you learned like where say a stomach was. And so then when people were getting x-rayed while sitting up, um, because they had a bellyache or whatever, doctors were going, you know, who are a little overzealous with this new fancy x-ray device. They were going, Oh, well we see what the problem is. Your stomach is lower than it should be. <laughs> I haven't so heard that one. so we'll we'll stitch your stomach up so that it's it doesn't where surprise it me. Be. So <laughs> hashtag that's so Victorian. I make so, my students do the hashtag. That sounds so Victorian. Yeah. So so was there any um like just horrific oopsie daisies like that uh, on on? Oh God, yes. The, I yeah. I mean I imagine I imagine there's a zillion of them. So uh, one thing I, I kind of am on a mission to spread information about is that like medical humanities doesn't try to debunk science, but we do try to say like, if you want to take it historically, it's not the only way we do it, but like, look at these mistakes we've made in the past. And like, it is stupid to think that we're not currently making some mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. So if we could try to realize that we're all humans with biases and perspectives, then we might avoid those things. So one thing I was working really hard on with this pandemic is trying to talk about like, maybe we should think about the sort of coincidence that seems omnipresent that these diseases always seem to come from Asia or Africa, supposedly. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody would publish that because everybody was really scared that I was trying to say epidemiology is false. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm just saying like, it is a little convenient that we never seem to say it comes from Idaho. Yeah. Um, and we might wanna examine how, how we're constructing the research questions that might be always giving us the same answers. The, the, the country that wiped out a, a civilization um, using smallpox and stuff it, it is, is now like, well, it's definitely not, not our fault. We, uh, you know, it's got to be we, other people. We figured people. out that much. It's not us. We don't know much else, but I know exactly. Or for instance, like, why is it important to us to figure out exactly where it started. Now, yeah. again, I'm not an epidemiologist. An epidemiologist probably has some good reasoning for that. And I'm not against epidemiologists, uh, but I, I would invite uh, us to say that like, if we're not realizing that we have biases, we're more prone to making very scary biases yeah. in our data. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the idea of finding uh, patient zero, just to, just to like inform them like, Hey, you didn't know? Nothing, nothing you could have done, oh. but just, just so you know, you ended the world. Uh, there's there's, there's uh, such a sad history, though, of thinking we've done that and really, like, abusing people. Like, um, yeah, Mary yeah. Mallon, who is more right. popularly known as Typhoid Mary. Um, yeah. Oh, really? She was so, hor well, she was so horribly mistreated. Because I was talking about, and I'm, I'm going to get one of my past bat researchers that I had on my, my show, Stand Up Science, who... I, I remember talking um, months ago um, uh, about the, um, uh, it just got brought up the other day on this podcast. It made me think of her, but the, the white um, fungus disease or whatever that's wiping out all of these bat populations here in the US, it came, they traced it back to one specific European who had like this fungus on his boots that like American bats weren't used to and went caving or something like that. And they traced it back to that guy, and that guy now like knows that he was responsible for. It. 
I mean, he didn't know. He was just like, oh. you know, behaving in a very regular, normal way, not trying to do anything malicious. But what a, what a crazy thing to find out that you like inadvertently. Oh. I feel like I've always been a bit of a klutz. I feel like, I feel like <laughs> next Is that pandemic, your destiny? Yeah, next pandemic's going to be my fault. That's, that's <laughs> I, I'm going to do something that, that is like, no doubt, very well intended, uh, and in hindsight, <laughs> will just seem horrifically stupid, and I'll just like spill something or something like that, and and it'll end the world. But that's funny. But um, so, so I have fun stories for you, Victorian great, stories. Great. Okay, so the one I was kind of going on about a minute ago that I forgot to finish in syphilis. Yeah. Uh, in the 1860s, they didn't yet germ theory was being kind of hotly debated still. So uh, they didn't have a great understanding of like what for us is obvious knowledge that STDs take two sex partners to transmit. Mm -hmm. And so, and they were hugely misogynistic. So they were like, cool, we've got to stop these, the syphilis. So let's just make sure that there isn't any sex workers because if we control the bodies and movement of sex workers, then there can't be any syphilis. Mm. Um, and sort of completely turning a blind eye to the like good old Victorian gentlemen that were trafficking the syphilis and spreading it also. So there was this series of laws enacted where if, if any woman was suspected of being a sex worker, she could be detained and forcibly examined with a speculum. Um, and I, I mean, this may make me sound like a totally like stereotypical feminist professor, but I'm also a woman. Um, no, I mean, I think this is appropriately exam. horrifying okay, <laughs> so, so far. I consider <laughs> that, like, I mean, that's basically instrumental rape. Like, they didn't yeah. have lube back then, like, spoiler alert. Right. And, you know, you're being held down and forcibly speculum examined to see if you had syphilis, which if they diagnosed it, they could lock you up in a hospital until you got better. Two spoilers. One, they were really, really suspicious of the female body and not smart about it. So they misdiagnosed a lot of normal female functions as syphilis. Mm -hmm. And also there was no cure and you were supposed yeah. to be in this hospital until you got better, but you didn't. So right. in, in the meantime, um, and this is sort of what I talk about in my CNN article, that whenever we're like, oh, it's going to stay nicely over there. This disease is going to respect the power structures that we like to believe in. Mm -hmm. um, like when we were all over here dicking around and thinking that the disease was going to stay in Wuhan, um, mm -hmm. kind of believing it wouldn't get here. Well, as this is happening, good Victorian middle-class women are starting to get syphilis and starting to have babies born with something called congenital syphilis, which means contracted in utero. We don't really have that too much anymore because we have penicillin, um, but it's noticeable from the second the baby is born. Mm -hmm. And so this is what, um, I have a whole chapter of authors like Henrik Ibsen, who wrote A Dollhouse and Hedda Gabler, um, writing about adults uh, dying of congenital syphilis. Now that's the South Park sort of tweak. Right. You didn't really live very well into adulthood with congenital syphilis, but he just manipulates that to be like, here is what you literally as a nation have birthed with your prejudice, is this person who is tortured and doomed to die of insanity and uh, tertiary syphilis because you were trying to pretend that your own morals weren't awful by saying only sex workers spread this disease. You actually spread it more. Mm -hmm. um, so my favorite Victorian terrible story, and you'll see, I think, as I go on, that these are all imbricated in power structures. So again, this is why I think it's important to think about our own time and think like, even if we um, accept most of our science to think how some of it may be deployed through power mechanisms, like who are getting the COVID tests right now? Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, first off, I might, can I just say that I am loving these stories? I'm, I'm hoping, my I don't favorite part I, of my it, job. if you, if you ever want to um, collaborate on like any like children's books or anything, I feel like this would make some like nice bedtime, <laughs> bedtime <laughs> <laughs> reading. 
um, but but uh, go, <laughs> all right. So so go on. Uh, you, okay. you have my attention. These are amazing. Okay. These are. This might make you squirm even more. So. Um, Yay! <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, happy ending. I, I, I'm not much of a baby. dancer, but I know how to. I know how to squirm pretty well. I, I, I have. This one will make I have a squirm. great squirm. Okay. I think this might be my squirmiest story. Um, <laughs> so, and I have a lot. So, yeah. So, happy ending, though. The the contagious disease acts about syphilis were repealed as people got more awareness of germ theory, how it worked, that this disease was in fact spreading. So. Proof that when you check your biases, you can kind of get things right later. So, uh, germ theory itself was kind of fought out and really won precedence. Like everybody got to kind of be on board with it through the realm of childbirth. Um, particularly in America, uh, the doctor's market was oversaturated. And so doctors needed a new market basically. And they invented obstetrics. It was the first medical specialty ever in existence. And it took off in America like nowhere else in the world because doctors needed a new market to populate because there were too many of them to all be general practitioners. Hmm. And to do this, they also had to kind of push midwives out. And so they kind of embarked on this sort of whisper campaign, if you will, of convincing the public that birth was inherently risky, uh, inherently pathological, and that midwives were kind of backwards and old school and couldn't really help you with those things. Con vice versa, what they had to do was say, but we can help you because we have tools and medicines. Hmm. Pause for a second, as this is happening and the obstetricians are coming more and more into the birthing field. So I would say by like, 1860, no uh, middle or upper class woman would have had a midwife. It was unfashionable and sort of low class. What some doctors are noticing at this point is that female mortality postpartum is skyrocketing. Hmm. And uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, his name is still memorized by like every med student ever, was tracking data in hospitals. Now, most women still weren't giving birth in hospitals, only poor women were, ironically, um, because they were kind of hotbeds of infection in a time when you didn't have, like, antibiotics mm -hmm. um, or hand washing. What Semmelweis noticed is that on the wards presided over by doctors, there was a lot more postpartum death than the ones presided over by midwives. Mm -hmm. He theorized that maybe it was something they were touching and spreading via germ yeah. in autopsy. I've heard this. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so he then was like, okay, you people, half of you wash your hands, half of you don't. And he noticed that, you know, the, the death rate went down. Well, what is a little bit less talked about of this story, that's kind of the famous narrative, is that doctors were really aggressively angry about this. Yeah. Um, both, I think, because like this was their livelihood and they didn't know what to do about it if they were killing women but also because of the gender norms. They really didn't want to think that their sort of realm of authority could be causing death. Mm -hmm. And so they got so aggressive about saying, no, our tools are working. So in a related uh, narrative, now this isn't about germ theory specifically, they had um, ergot, which um, is a kind of related to S uh, LSD, um, you sometimes yeah. hear about it as positive for being what caused the Salem witch crisis. Mm -hmm. Like maybe people had LSD poisoning. They could give you ergot, which would make the uterus pump to try to push out the baby, but you can't make it stop and you don't have good control over how hard the uterus pumps. Mm -hmm. And it would like, it, the uterus would often explode in oh, the woman's body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, so that was the squirming part. Oh, yeah. That that's you're... maybe my most squirmy one. Okay. Like, it would just, it would just, oh, can you imagine what that would feel like? No, you can't. I've had two I, kids. I can. <laughs> I can't. I mean, um, if it makes you help, I, if it, if it helps at all, I can try to imagine my testicles exploding or something like that. Yeah. yeah I did probably, it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Unpleasant. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, another story in this time is that doctors were so trenchantly like, we are not causing this infection that there's 
a story of a doctor taking a uterus out of a woman he had autopsied and putting it in his pocket <laughs> to go to the next childbirth to prove that it wouldn't infect her. And, it, and she died. Yeah. Oh. Yucky well, stuff, mean people. But <laughs> that's the only way to learn. Try trial and error. Semmelweis over here being I mean, like, how do you, hands. How do you know? Unless, unless, you, unless you stick a uterus in your pocket oh, and then go throw it at another lady, no, how do you know no, that that's a good or a bad thing? No. Mm -mm, I don't like that method. I think the scientific method that Semmelweis used had better. (laughs) I mean, wasn't wasn't there a lot, wasn't some of the additional um, pressure at the time too was that a lot of these doctors to like, to like be covered in blood and guts was like, you were a hard worker. And so to wash your hands and to wear clean stuff, it'd be like if you're a construction worker that like, never broke a sweat or had any calluses on their hands or, or, or something like that, or, or was, yeah. never got dirty. Like, well, are you even working? What are you I, doing if you're not, you know? Yeah. And well, it's interesting, actually, like surgeons in our day and age, like I always tell my students, like if you could go on a date with a surgeon or a doctor, which would you be more impressed by? Usually we say surgeon, but at the, in the Victorian era, doctors were more respectable because surgeons touched bodies and got gross. Mm-hmm. And that was more like manual labor. And so, like, gentlemen weren't really involved in that. So it's kind it was, of a, it was blue collar, ripping mm-hmm. out organs and stuff yeah, was just that yeah. kind of blue collar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like so a garbage man or something. I know, I know. Yeah, they <laughs> considered it a lot like yuckier. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is amazing. Oh, Victorians! Uh, oh, are the best words. Oh, Victorians! <laughs> I, I, I hope that's the title of your next book. Oh, Victorian. <laughs> well, now I think it will. What be. are you gonna do? <laughs> so, I have to ask you before before we start wrapping up. Okay. Um, I want to know. Favorite diseases, why, and how you think this, uh, where Corona is going to fall out. And, uh, and when I say favorite, I don't, for the listeners, like, uh, but, and, unless you think we're taking things too lightly or you shouldn't, shouldn't be joking or one, you should be joking around about horrific things. Um, and I would argue that you have to, and it's one of the only ways to stay sane. Um, yep. and, and two, I'm I'm saying just in terms of like fascinating, you know. Um, oh yeah. So, something doesn't need to be good for us to be uh, fascinating. Yeah, it's funny. My students all by the end of any of my classes, no matter the topic, they know my favorite diseases because I always I have them in yeah. ranked order. And I will tell them. They to call you her now. syphilis lady, but she's <laughs> really into tuber- tuberculosis. Really syphilis. Let me tell you something. Shane, syphilis is low-hanging fruit. It's not that yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not that I'm not that into it. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is Ruby. this is this is by the way, um for for any listeners um that are just like now getting into science and like, wow, this is some really interesting stuff. You still you might want to wait a little while before the next time you're like when when bars open up again. This isn't always. This isn't going to be the best conversation to like pick up a guy or a gal to be like. Just so you know, syphilis isn't is isn't that big of a deal. I'm uh, not really into it. Yeah. One of my funniest grad school memories was when I was writing my dissertation, and and every chapter you you write, you send it to your advisor. They look at it. They tell you you know why you're stupid or why it's terrible and what to fix, and then mm. they send it back. So you've got every time you send it's in a chapter, you've got like a, I know it's great. It just really there, breaks you down. There's there no no gold stickers or smiley faces no, or anything. No, no. Surprisingly, oh, academia break. is not the field. If you want to pat on the head, they, they give you they give you the stick rather than the carrot. It sounds yeah. like I always tell people like when they're like if I get invited for a podcast and they think I might be nervous, I'm like, no, I have no dignity anymore. I went yeah. to grad school. Like, yeah, you've been a, all you, that out of me. You've been abused by uh, 
by so many people. What, I know, right? What's, like, what's one know-nothing goof, goofball you know, comedian? You know, you know. So uh, you get like this like three-week reprieve after you turn in each chapter before you're told that you're just awful and never going to amount to anything. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember walking into a bar to celebrate with some of my friends when I had turned in my chapter on syphilis. And I have a, I don't know if you can hear this, but I have a very loud voice. Mm-hmm. And I walked into the bar. And I was like, syphilis is out of my life for now. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, that no, is, and nobody wanted to talk to me. That, was a that, that is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've said some things when I'm excited <laughs> that, uh, that I'm sure have been taken out of context. Before, but that's, that's a doozy. Oh, that's you know one. what? Thank Another one. Just like that was three. brave of you to share. You know, <laughs> I have no dignity or shame, and I mean it. Perfect. It was about eight weeks ago, actually. I was on a, a flight, and I had met a group of flight attendants talking about coronavirus before the mm-hmm. flight. And then I saw him again, and he didn't recognize me. And I was like, no, it's me, the corona girl, the coronavirus girl on a plane. <laughs> you got to stop naming yourself different diseases. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think, Shane, that's a really good rule of thumb, and I don't know why my therapists have never told me that. <laughs> just like, like every every time you're out and about in public and someone asks you how you are you're like oh, i can't tell if i'm feeling like tuberculosis girl right now or corona lady i i don't know which aspect of me i am right. um all right so um a favorite favorite, favorite diseases. diseases uh group a strep which is uh what you get when you get strep throat uh wasn't yeah. expecting that one. It's the That's one that women were dying of in those germ theory debates. Um, wow. And so I like it because it is fascinating. It is the sort of untold microbe that got us on board with germ theory, probably more than any other, in my opinion. Um, and I actually, like, this sounds weird, but I feel like a weird... <laughs> Uh, this is the most vulnerable thing I'm going to say to I've said some stuff. Yeah. I feel like a debt to it because it was studying sure. this infection that put me on my career path that I was like, oh my God, like if you knew that these diseases were what they were talking about in these novels, it completely changes the politics of the novel that a doctor killed her and, and the Victorians would have known that, but we're, we don't know that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not picking up on that. My other so, favorite is oh, so yeah. streps like the best thing that's ever happened to you. It is, and you know what? <laughs> if we were a Facebook relationship, it would be it's complicated uh, because I've never sure. once gotten it. Never. Everybody really? gets strep throat. I got strep throat. Oh, you, and you it's love so it so to, much. It doesn't like me. And you're the one. Oh. I really, I legitimately try to breathe a lot around my friends' <laughs> strep throat because I really want it just one time. Uh, yeah. One time. Yeah, you've been studying it for so long. No, it does not. It's not mutual. Uh, um, tuberculosis is my second it, favorite. I, I mean, you know what it is? I think you're coming on a little strong. I think <laughs> I think you got to play it cool a little bit. And you not can't the just, first time I've been told that in my life about it, a number of things. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't work. You know that that um, it, it doesn't work to just kind of like hoodwink strep throat either you can't be like oh strep throat yeah i don't even care about strep throat anymore you're not going to get it that way like you 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 know when you're going to get strep throat it's when you really really don't give a shit about it anymore you're just sick of thinking about it sick of talking about it when you've moved on then it's gonna come crawling that's yeah that's the day that's the day i gotta play harder to get yeah yeah <laughs> oh my God! Yes, you you just solved a lot of my life's dilemmas. I gotta <laughs> I gotta go do some thinking. Um. All right. Strep throat number one. No hands. Tu- tuberculosis. What, Ooh. All right. It was just what? a really confusing disease to Victorians because it, as I said, it's really hard to get. Um. You typically will only get it even if you're like right around somebody with TB. You have to be fairly immunocompromised. And then you may still never show an active infection. You may always have latent. And then even if it uh, kills you, it could be years and years later. Mm -hmm. Children don't get it, um, which is actually something we're seeing with COVID as well. 
Um, we don't know why with COVID or if they're getting it and they're asymptomatic, but with tuberculosis, they can't inhale the pathogen deeply enough into their like tiny baby lungs to, for it to like culture and grow. Hmm. Um, so it was just super confusing to them. Even once they, in 1882, identified the mycobacterium that caused it, they still were kind of like, oh, we think it might be a hereditary weakness. Like, and it kind of would promote like eugenicist discourse. Like they were hmm. like, uh, uh, one of my favorite statisticians, Carl Pearson, who developed the algorithm for calculating correlation that we still use today. He like famously wrote a book about whether it was, uh, contagious or hereditary and at the end he was like well it doesn't even matter because at least they're all going to die off and then we won't have those weak people anymore Ooh, um, great yeah. at math though i know i know <laughs> we almost named our dog after him once and i didn't know back when i was studying statistics and not a historian really yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, awkward Sy I know. syphilis lady and her dog genocide i know right oh, <laughs> Uh, and my last favorite is the type A flu, which is what caused the 1918 flu epidemic. I was blessed to receive it last year. And you can ask anybody who knows me, I was actually sitting up in bed, like writing notes because I was very excited to know what it would have felt to die from that disease. Like the Victoria, the Edwardians that I study. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It feels That's... horrible. It's not a good way to die. I don't. Yeah. I mean, I got, I, I have a, I have a top hat like an old English top hat. Um, it's like 120 years old or something. So, you know, that's how, that's how I get my, um, that's how I get my fix. But, um, <laughs> you, know. you know, we all have our thing. Yeah, sure. Most people are, do not have my thing. You know. <laughs> so where, where do you think, uh, where do you think Corona's going to rank for you? I mean, I mean, the thing is, is there's so much we don't know about it right now. And so you don't know, like maybe it will be, Maybe once we fix it in blinds or in hindsight, we're gonna we're just gonna be like, oh, it was so the answer was right in front of us the whole time, uh, or maybe maybe this will just be this never ending. Uh, maybe it will keep mutating and it'll keep getting worse. Who who knows? And that and that I feel like that determines how. Uh, but this is has anything uh, shut down the world like this in? Um, in 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 the last few centuries i think they did do something similar with the spanish flu uh -huh. um I'll, I'll go on record as saying i am not a spanish flu expert but i think i've read at least like in spain um one of my friends was sending me letters that fitzgerald and hemingway were writing about being quarantined there mm. Um, which are hilarious letters. So I don't know in America that we did that though. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know. I think, you know, at the, I know I've answered so many of your questions obliquely, but sorry, I'm going to do it again. Um, mm -hmm. My book at the end of the day is about how by the 1880s germ theory and, and realizing that the people you were closest with in your community could be killing you in many ways inspired this sort of individualistic, like look out for a number one uh, knee jerk reaction of self-protected isolationism. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to stay over here. I'm not going to get sick. That's the only answer we have. And what I see in these books that do this, I love your parallel, this sort of South park alteration to the reality. Um, they often I'm saying are showing that when we lose our human connection, we lose our humanity. So yes, quarantining ourselves, let's say, might save our lives, it might keep our heart beating. But when we lose our social connection, we lose what's worth living for. Mm -hmm. Because what we talk about when we talk about disease is people. Um, and so I don't know what I think about the pathogen. I, I have no idea, I don't have a prediction what we'll find. But I know that this will live on in every single one of our memories. Like this hasn't happened in a hundred years. If it happened during the Spanish flu, then it happened 98 years ago, maybe. Mm. I, I just, I think I'm kind of in awe. Like it feels surreal, doesn't it? To be living through a time where the world shut down. 
and has made us think about, I mean, I'm so grateful that I can have a conversation with you right now that my daughter's preschool teacher can read a book to her over the internet. And so we're so lucky, I think, in so many ways that we're not having to make the choice the Victorians made. Do you isolate and live or do you potentially risk death to truly live for a little bit? We're not having to make that choice because we can connect digitally and yet I think at the same time, we're all seeing how much it pales in comparison to truly going to a pub and having a pint with your friends, mm. actually playing a board game. I mean, the one time I got emotional this whole time was when I saw my, my daughter's preschool teacher reading her a book digitally mm-hmm. and, and seeing how the teacher sitting in an empty preschool classroom and my daughter like listening like she's a real person, but they can't touch, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think... For me, what's gotten me in my feels is just that we're so lucky and people are finding these beautiful ways to connect at all costs, which is just what I've been writing about in this book that makes up humanity. And yet I think we're also being in a weird way gifted a renewed appreciation for non-digital human contact and the fact that we were not meant to live wholly digital lives. And I think increasingly neoliberal and corporate society kind of would like to believe that teachers can teach online and uh, we don't need in-person interviews. There's no difference, right? Do we need live shows? And I think we're both seeing that human will will prevail and will connect no matter what, but like this wasn't how we were meant to live. And I, I hope that we'll come out of this, uh, with a renewed chunk of the population insisting on true, deep, interpersonal connection at a non-digital level. That that would be amazing. You know, it's as a as a comedian. I, I don't I don't want to make this um about like a oh par me or anything. No, but it I don't, is I don't, about I don't, you. It's uh, about all of us. I I I mean, you know, I I I don't. Uh, the the least of my concerns is whether or not I'm going to be able to do stand-up comedy regularly again. I have other things that I can uh, do with my life. But but I, I will say that in my 16 years, um, in my 16 years as a uh, touring stand-up comedian, you know, when I started in 2004, um, that was cell phones had just started coming out. Um, really still, I, I mean, in terms of, in terms mm-hmm. of like everyone having one and, <laughs> and it was always still, being on them. Yeah. It, well, at the time it was still like, no one was texting during a show or anything. And people just started getting, I just watched over the last 16 years, people getting more and more sucked into the screen. Not only has it been harder and harder to get people out, not to stand up, but also to, you know, live music. I, mm-hmm. you, I mean, you can you can ask you can survey your average people walking down the street. Like, when's when's the last time they went to like a live concert to a to a a live comedy show to a play to you know to anything like that? Yeah. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's been years, yeah, years and years. And uh, and it was only getting hard. And the people that were coming out, you know, it was getting near impossible to get them off of their phones. Mm. So the people that were out were getting sucked into their screen. Everyone, you know, you go to restaurants and you see everyone on there. You see four people at a table and they're all on their, uh, on their phones. I've, I've certainly been guilty of it myself. Oh yeah, me too. Um, and, uh, you you know, it's, it it was fun. So it was funny at first for me when, when, um, people were like, Oh no, no live entertainment. Like, uh, we live entertainers have been pulling teeth to get you guys off of the couch for the last two decades, and now all of a sudden you have to sit on the couch for a couple of weeks, and and everyone all of a sudden is like, but what about live entertainment? I want live entertainment. And at first I was like a little bit, you know, <laughs> annoyed by it. all yeah. of a sudden people wanted live entertainment. Um, but, um, but I think you make a really, really great point is, is that, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as, uh, as anyone. And obviously I'm biased as a live entertainer, but that, that would be this, this could be a really interesting time if, if we, 
Because I'm, I'm very worried about people just in terms of what isolation can do to the body, mind, and spirit yes. and immune system and, and everything else. And, um, you know, hopefully at the end of this, I, I sure hope people are into spending a lot more time outdoors, a lot more time socializing and... Um, and in the arts. Yeah. Yeah. I think a key part of it will be um, people like you and you have more of a platform than me, but me also and whatever listeners saying that so that people don't, I mean, it's very easy to just sort of, you know how when you have a stomach bug and whenever you're really sick, you're like, I'm never eating pizza again. Like I eat such crap all the time. And the second you get better, you're like, I want a pizza. Yeah, It's yeah. so easy for the human mind to just go back to the status quo. And I think it's incumbent upon those of us who think about it and who can to say, Hey, like, didn't you suddenly wish you could have these outlets? Like, let's embrace that and certainly resist any companies and employers saying like, great news. We've learned that we can do this all online because that's not what any of us need. Hmm. Well, I, 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 I hope so. I think that's a, that's a really important point that I haven't heard a lot of people making so far and it's really valid. Um, I, I, I really, I really appreciate your time. It's so, it's been so nice uh, meeting you so far. You I've been too. getting a lot of repeat guests on and, and, um, and, and it's cool to meet some, start meeting some new folks uh, as well. Can you, can you repeat for people just kind of as since people are hunkered down and they're living in a digital world, any social, the name of your book, any, anything that you'd like people to check out? Sure. Um, my newest book is coming out, I think in June. Um, it's called Kept from All Contagion, Germ Theory, Disease, and the Dilemma of Human Contact. Is it's there any way you can speed that up that release date up a little bit you know, you, you might you might have a, you might have a, 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 you might have stumbled on some decent timing for that book i know you know my my title used to be something that sort of made you be like huh the dilemma of human contact never thought about that and now i'm like it's so on the nose yeah well b- by june you might be one of a hundred books with similar <laughs> titles. oh god don't say that that's an academic <laughs> nightmare i know um and I am trying to build my Twitter following. I don't know why. Sometimes I'm not sure why I should. But um, I took a three-year break from Twitter, and I'm back. I think it's really bad for people. And yet, follow yeah. me. Do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my handle is Half Sick Shadows. So based on a Tennyson poem, look it up. Half Sick, sick shadows. shadows. Yep. Okay. Um, awesome. I have a recent article on CNN, too, that's basically a summary of my book. If you just Google CNN, Kari Nixon, K-A-R-I-N-I-X-O-N like the other president that got impeached. Awesome. Well, I, um, uh, yeah, but, uh, and uh, he, he didn't, uh, he didn't actually, well, well, he resigned then right. too, which was, uh, that's a, that's a huge, uh, uh, that, what an improvement uh, on our current situation. Um, I'm not even, Oh, I can't. <laughs> no, I know. No, none of us can. Um, um, but it's, you know, I, I took a, I took a three-year break from Twitter um, because of because of uh, because of Trump, and everyone was like, "Well, we're all complaining about this guy, so you know now we're all like annoyed." But but now I'm starting to realize that it's actually just the opposite. Just just in the fact that we need to keep on saying um, social distancing is important. Everyone stay inside. <laughs> we mm-hmm. we need to say the same thing about having incredibly dangerous leaders um, at the yeah. at the helm of. Uh, uh, world crisis. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, uh, I, I do want to say I'm grateful for you. Um, Kari, you thank you for doing this. Um, queen of strep Nixon. Thank you. Thank you. Huh? Let's change that Into narrative. <laughs> All right. Well, well, thank you so much for joining the here we are podcast. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll see you next episode. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. A podcast network.